Thank you, Misha. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2 It was where we're going to start here in just a little bit. We're going to move a lot through uh, different portions of the New Testament as we continue this series. We started a few weeks ago entitled Counterfeit Christianity. And uh, so 2 Timothy chapter 2, again, we'll get to this in just a few moments. And then really towards the close of this message, we're going to be moving through a lot of passages of Scripture. And uh, if you've got your Bibles, hopefully you'll be able to keep up. If not, then we're going to have them all on the overhead, most of them. And uh, you can jot them down and and, uh, check them out later on today for yourself. So this this series we've been in now, this is the fourth message. Uh, Not the fourth week, but the fourth message. I was out last Sunday. I heard that Canis did an amazing job as he filled in uh, last Sunday. So thanks to Canis. Blackston for doing that. But this is the fourth message in this particular series. And the whole premise of the series is uh, looking at different groups in our culture that would, if you were to ask them, are they Christian? They would say yes. You know, you know, if you were to ask them personally, are you a Christian? They would say, yes, I am. If you were to ask the group in total, you know, are you a Christian group? They would say, yes, we are. However, when you begin to really look at their doctrine, you find that the things they believe just don't line up with Scripture. And I'm not talking about minor things, things that that uh, you know, one denomination may feel differently than another. You know, one denomination may baptize one way, and another denomination may baptize another. But at the heart of the gospel, they still agree. The heart of who God is, they still agree. Those kinds of things. Scripture, uh, they, they would still agree. We're not looking at those differences. We're looking at, at different groups that would claim to be Christian, but in the main areas of doctrine, the doctrine of who God is, of who Jesus is, the Trinity, uh, the authority of Scripture, salvation, uh, uh, man sin, all those different, really, the, the, the pillars of, of, uh, of truth, they would disagree on. They would gravitate away from Scripture. And so they would claim to be Christian, but really at the heart of who they are, in, in reality, they are counterfeit Christians. They're counterfeit Christian groups. And so some may use the terminology cult groups. Uh, you may use different terms to, to uh, describe them. Uh, for us, counterfeit Christian, I think, typically seems to fit. And so that's what we've been looking at through these past few weeks. The reason we do a series like this is, is for a couple of reasons. One, to help equip us to know the difference between biblical Christianity and what a lot of different groups that are really counterfeit in nature really honestly believe. And so it helps us to know how to share the truth with people who are, who are walking in error. It helps us to learn. Hopefully your, your toolbox is getting a little more filled as we move through the series and learning some of the differences of different groups and, and how to, to best present the truth to them. But also at the same time, it's, it's to help us put our roots deep, you know, so that we aren't led astray, so that we aren't deceived. There's a passage of scripture, 2 Timothy chapter 2. I want you just to take a quick look at here and then we're going to move on. Verses 15 through 19, Paul is writing this passage, uh, the this particular letter actually to a, to a young pastor, a, a young leader in the early church. His name is Timothy. And notice what he says here. He says, some of you Awana kids and, and uh, volunteers are going to recognize the first part of this verse. He says, be diligent to present yourself approved to God. That word diligent is already a conviction, really, for a lot of believers today because we're not as diligent as we should be. You know, church is just a place we go. Church is something we do. A, a, a relationship with God it really is only something we focus on when we need something. Now, Timothy, Paul says to Timothy, he says, no, be diligent. In other words, let this be the drive of your life. And more important than anything else, the team you cheer for, you know, the, the pay raise you hope to get, you know, that, that, that your marriage, your family, more important than anything else, he says, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed. And then here's what he says next, showing what this looks like, accurately handling the word of truth. The reason we do a series like this 
is to help us as followers of Jesus who are in a lot of different places on the spectrum. Some of you are very mature in your faith. Others are still kind of coming along and you're very early on in your faith. A lot of, a lot of people are in between. He says, be sure that you know how to accurately handle the word of truth. He says, avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. And then look at what he goes on to say. He mentions two by name. He says, among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus. These would have been two people that Timothy would have been well familiar with. He says, men who have gone astray from the truth. And here's one of the things they were saying, that the resurrection has already taken place, and they upset the faith of some. In other words, Paul names names. He mentions two people. He doesn't slam them. He doesn't get personal. He just lays it out in order to protect Timothy, to protect the early church. He says, these are two men you need to be careful of. Why? Because they are spreading error. They are spreading something that is just untrue, that is not the truth. And so, again, a reason that we do a series like this and the reason that we talk about specific groups by name is not to say, hey, we're better than them. We're Baptists. Good night. Baptist churches have enough of our own issues that we need to be working through, right? And so it's not to pick on other people. It is to deal with the issues of truth. And so Paul names these two by name. He gives one area of doctrine really where they've missed it and are leading people astray verse 19 he says nevertheless the firm foundation of God stands having this seal and this is what he says the Lord knows those who are his and everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness and so error is nothing new right when you've got someone knocking on your door you meet someone who is a part of a counterfeit Christian group and they're sharing something you've never heard before just understand error is nothing new it has been around since the beginning of time Right? And even in the early church, in the first century church, Paul was having to deal with this through, through the likes of Timothy and through early, specific early church congregations. Paul was having to set the standard straight. Uh, Canis made mention of that even last week uh, as well out of the book of Jude. That it is, error is nothing new. And so many of the groups that are out today that are counterfeit Christian groups are just propagating the same old errors that have been out there for, uh, for uh, hundreds of years, and, uh, and the enemy still continues to use them. Jesus said in John eight thirty two, he said, the truth will, will make you free, right? And so the counter to that is also true, that if someone is not walking in truth, then they're not able to enjoy freedom. If the truth makes you free, and if we are not walking in truth, then the counter is also going to apply, that if we walk in error, we will be enslaved, we will be deceived, and we will suffer as a result of it. And so we look at the truth of Scripture. We've looked at two groups specifically in this series. The first, the first uh, group we looked at uh, were the Mormons, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We talked through some of their history, as we do every time. We talked about some of their doctrinal beliefs specifically uh, as compared to biblical Christianity. And then as we've done each week and as we'll do today, we pull out one specifically and we focus on it. And when we looked at the, the Mormons, and I use the term church lightly, whenever we looked at the Mormon church, the one specific area of belief we pulled out was the their beliefs about the authority of Scripture and how they hold to four different works. The, the, the King James Version, which is translated their way, uh, and then three other works that they also focus on, the Book of Mormon being one of them, the Pearl of Great Price, Doctrine and Covenants. And we looked at really what biblical Christianity believes, that God's Word is our authority. God's Word is what we trust in. That's why we preach it. That's why we teach it in our small groups, in our Sunday school classes. That's why in Awana, kids memorize Scripture. It's because that's our authority. It's God's Word to us. God wrote it, and He wrote it through men. There is no other book like it on the face of this earth. 
And so the very first group that we looked at, the Mormons, we looked at the authority of Scripture and what biblical Christianity believes about the Bible and that it is God's Word specifically written to us. It's one story about one God who sent his one son, Jesus Christ, to die one death and rise one time so that all people in all periods of time can have an opportunity to know God personally and to be forgiven. And so we looked at the Mormon church specifically and we looked at the doctrine of the authority of scripture. And then the second uh, group that we looked at specifically was really a movement, not a group. It was the new age movement and how pervasive it is. And it, re- it rears its head up in a lot of different areas in our culture. And, uh, and the, the one thing we looked at regarding the uh, new age movement was their belief about who God is. And they see God vastly differently than the way the Bible pictures him. In fact, they would believe that you're God and that, that every person is God. And everything is God. It's called pantheism. And we looked at what scripture says about God, that he is personal, that God is a God who desires to be known, that God is a God who is everywhere, that he's omnipresent, that he's omniscient, he knows everything, and that God is a God who desires that we come to him through Jesus Christ. And so that was the group we looked at second. Well, today, uh, the third group I want us to focus on is a group probably that you're more familiar with than any other group, and it's a group called the Jehovah's Witnesses. More than likely, you have been visited by a person from the Jehovah's Witnesses. There is a kingdom hall located right here in, the, in our community on the islands uh, that's been there for a number of years, about 15, 20 years or so now. And uh, you're probably well familiar with this group specifically uh, because of, well, for a number of different reasons. Let me, let me tell you a little bit about the group called the Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, their official name is the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society. And you're probably familiar with that name because you've often been offered, I'm sure, at your doorstep uh, a copy of one of their documents called the Watchtower. Uh, how many of you, this is a no-brainer, how many of you have ever been visited in your home by a person who is a Jehovah's Witnesses? Let me see your hands, okay? Just look around, most every hand that is up, all right? How many of you have ever been visited in your home by a person who would call themselves an evangelical Christian, a biblical, a a, a classic believer, a follower of Jesus Christ, not a counterfeit Christian, a genuine believer. They came knocking on your door simply because they were concerned that you have a relationship with God. How many of you have ever been visited by someone like that? Let me see your hands. Okay, Uh, much different, right? Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, in some ways, should be very convicting to the evangelical church today because they are extremely aggressive in regards to going after people who do not believe the way that they do. Uh, Why do churches today, why do believers like us not carry that same desire with an authentic, genuine passion to introduce other people to the one true living Savior, Jesus Christ, to introduce them to the pages of God's Word that never changes, that's without error, that will never lead us astray? Why do we not have that same passion, right? It is extremely convicting that almost every hand, if not every hand went up here, that you've been visited by a person who is a counterfeit Christian who believes vastly differently, as we'll see in a second, vastly differently than what the Bible teaches, and yet only a few hands went up to say, you know what, I've, I've, I've been visited by a genuine believer that came knocking on my door that cared enough for me. Why is there such a difference between those two numbers? Whenever the Jehovah's Witnesses visit 
they bring what is called a watchtower. The watchtower is more of their uh, proselytizing material um, uh, for the most part. They have another publication called Awake, which is more of their discipleship material. You probably were not handed that necessarily unless you were a part of their group. The watchtower is kind of their introduction. It's their gateway into their ministry, so to speak. And that's often what they'll hand out to people. You've probably found them in your door in, you know, in your door when you weren't there and it was maybe laying on your sidewalk or tucked into your... You you know, your storm door, regardless, you may have met someone and they gave you one of those. You see them laid out at hospitals a lot of times sitting out, and uh, you see them almost everywhere. The reason for that is because there are about 7 million Jehovah's Witnesses worldwide in 230 countries. Here in our own country, there are a little over a million here. And for some reason, it seems as though in the South, <laughs> most of them seem to be concentrated. I think most of them right here in our own community, it seems. And so uh, it's not uncommon. Many of them are raised up through that particular organization from infancy. You know, they're born into a family where a mom or a dad was a Jehovah's Witness. And then that's just kind of the way they're raised. You know, the history doesn't go back that far. Their leader was a man named Charles Taze Russell. And uh, back in the early 1800s, mid-1800s or so, he started as a teenager, he started a group of Bible studies. Uh, he would later, um, a few years after that, would then begin to, uh, to publish and to write, and he would put together a group of studies specifically called Studies in the Scriptures. And up until his death in 1916, he would put out these studies, and those studies in the Scriptures would basically lay out their whole entire doctrinal system, their whole belief system. And so their belief system today traces back not so much to Scripture, but to their founder, Charles Taze Russell, to his understanding of the Scriptures. And so when he wrote these studies, it would lay out their belief system that they still build on specifically today. And so when you look at their history, their history doesn't go back real, real far, just a century or, or a century and a half or so. Uh, and, yet, and yet, though they would claim to follow Scripture, we have to understand what Scripture means to them. Jehovah's Witnesses have some other interesting beliefs. They don't celebrate holidays. Uh, they don't celebrate patriotic holidays. They don't salute the flag. They don't volunteer for military service. They don't celebrate birthdays. The belief there is that the focus is on man and not on Jehovah. And so they don't celebrate birthdays, those kinds of things. Uh, they don't accept blood transfusions. If any of you in the medical community, I'm sure, are very well familiar with that because you probably had patients that refused blood transfusions on the basis of their understanding of Scripture, which is erroneous. Um, and so they, they will not accept blood transfusions. They just have a lot of different interesting beliefs that have somewhat of a religious tie, but you just really don't see them link up well with Scripture. When you begin to look at what they understand, what they, what they believe about certain major doctrines, this is where it gets especially difficult. You've heard me use the illustration through this series about unpacking luggage and how one person, if they have a lug, you know, their luggage titled Jesus, uh, a counterfeit Christian will unpack that, and those contents are going to look different than if you as a biblical follower of Christ uh, unpack your luggage labeled Jesus. They're going to look much differently. I would say probably there's no other group that that would be more applicable to than the Jehovah's Witnesses. Because when you stand and have conversation with them, which you should, when you have conversation and dialogue with them about your understanding of Scripture and about your faith and about your relationship with God, you will begin to see very, very quickly that the same terms are used, the same words are used, God, Jesus, salvation, uh, eternal life, all those words are used, but their understanding is going to be much different than your understanding of those terms. Let's start with the person of God, for example. The biblical view of God is that God is one God in three persons. We call that the Trinity. 
okay? You don't see the word Trinity used in Scripture. Uh, granted, it's not in, the, in there, and they will be glad to point that out to you. However, the concept of the Trinity is throughout the Bible. We looked at this a little bit uh, two weeks ago when we looked at the New Age movement, their understanding of God, that it is very clear that God is one God who has revealed himself in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. <clears throat> That's the biblical view of God. For the Jehovah's Witnesses, their view is different. They deny the Trinity. They reject the Trinity. They see God as only presenting himself as Jehovah. And they will use that word every single time. They don't use the word God so much as they use the word Jehovah. And so they deny the Trinity. They don't believe in the Trinity the way that a a biblical Christian would believe in the Trinity. But they also don't believe that God is omnipresent. They don't believe that God can be everywhere all the time. Um, They would have had some real issue with some of the songs we sang this morning, believing that God can be everywhere all the time. They they reject that. And, And here's something real interesting, a real important to keep in mind, that when you are having a conversation with a Jehovah's Witness, hopefully the goal is not to try to win an argument. Hopefully the goal is not to prove your point. Hopefully the goal is to help them to understand the truth of God's Word. And when you begin to talk about your personal relationship with God, and when you begin to talk about how God has been there for you specifically at difficult times in your life, when you begin to talk about how he met you where you were and how he began to to work in you and to mold you and to shape you and to bless you and to provide for you and to protect you, when you talk about that, that is foreign to a Jehovah's Witness. It is foreign to any counterfeit Christian because they don't have an understanding of the personal aspect of God. They don't have an understanding, they don't have an experience of what it means to, to have an ongoing relationship with God. God is not personal to them. God is not a God who is personal at all to them. They don't even believe that he is everywhere all the time. They don't believe that that's possible. And so they would reject your understanding of that. So one of the most powerful things you can do is to talk about your own personal testimony. When you look at the Holy Spirit, again, they reject the deity of the Holy Spirit. They don't believe the Holy Spirit is God. They don't believe that there is a personal quality to the Holy Spirit, despite the fact the Bible says that we can grieve the Holy Spirit we can quench the Holy Spirit. Uh, they don't believe that the Holy Spirit has a personal aspect. They view the Holy Spirit as a force that Jehovah has sent out into the world. Impersonal, active, and yet impersonal, and not God. And so your understanding of the Holy Spirit, when he convicts you of sin, when he, when he uh, gives you comfort, when he, when he gives you wisdom, is going to be foreign to them, totally foreign to them, because that's not how they understand the Holy Spirit. Their work of authority is a translation of the Bible called the New World Translation. I have a copy actually in my office if you ever want to take a look at it. It was translated in 1961 and again this is where it's helpful for the believer to be aware because if you have dialogue with them uh, whether it's on your doorstep or somewhere else you're going to pull out your Bible and they're going to pull out their Bible and they're going to look much much the same. Yours may be called the New American Standard. Yours may be called the New International Version. Yours may be called the King James Version. Theirs is going to be called the New World Translation. It's going to sound much the same. What you have to understand, however, a few things that are important when understanding how they view their Bible. They don't have any other works that they add to it. They don't have any other book they hold to the Bible, but it's their translation, the New World Translation. So who are the translators of the New World Translation? Well, they've never made those translators publicly known. They refuse to do that. And so when their translation committee in the 1960s began to put together this translation, 
they, under the, under the, the, um, the template of humility, chose not to reveal the names of their committee. And if you request their names, they will not make those names available. Well, there has been uh, a person who was a part of their governing body that was enough on the inside who does know who those people are, who's no longer Jehovah's Witness, and has, um, has, has made some pretty clear statements that the people on the translation committee were not biblical scholars. At best, they had a very basic understanding of Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic, which were the original languages of the Scriptures. Now, when I was in, he- when I was in seminary, I took Greek. I took one year of Greek. Uh, I sweated half of the sweat of my whole life through that class. The other half of my sweat in my whole life, I sweated out through Hebrew, all right? So I am a biblical scholar, right? I got one year of Hebrew and one year of Greek. How many of you took a year of foreign language in high school? Uh, any of you? All right. Are you proficient in that language? You're going to haul off to Mexico or Paris and function and live? Probably not, all right? And so for those who are on this translation committee, people who've been on the inside have said they didn't, there were no biblical scholars there. Here's what they did. They, they made the classic mistake that all of us sometimes can make in our own lives where they interpreted their, their, the scriptures in light of their beliefs. We can't ever do that. We never interpret God's word in light of what we believe or want it to believe. We have to start with God's word and let it shape our beliefs. Does that make sense? you got to start at the right place. You don't say, okay, this is what I believe. Now let me set out and translate a new copy of the Bible and make some changes to it that's going to fit my belief system. Remember, their bleeder, Charles Taze Russell, put together the basic foundations of their beliefs through his studies in the Scriptures for years and years. And when the translation was then made in 1961 of the Bible, they had to translate that, the, 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 uh, the original languages to fit their beliefs. And you cannot do that. Now, let me give you an example. John chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word. That Word is capital in your scriptures. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. If you move down to verse 14 in John chapter 1, you'll see this verse. It says, And the Word, capital W, was made flesh and dwelt among us. So who is the Word in that passage of Scripture? The Word is a reference to Jesus. He, made, he was made flesh and He dwelt among us. Well, in the New World Translation, I can show it to you again if you want to stick around. In the New World Translation, here's the way they translate it. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God, and the Word was, and then they include a, a. The Word was with God, and the Word was a God, small g. And the reason they translate it that way is because of their beliefs of who Jesus is. We'll get to that here in just a few minutes. Listen to what one theologian, who is a, what we call a textual critic, he is one who studies the original languages of Scripture, uh, one who is a seminary professor, Princeton Theological Seminary, his name is Bruce Metzger, scholar. Here's what he says about their translation of Scripture. Quote, a frightful mistranslation, erroneous, pernicious, reprehensible. And by the way, did I mention that their governing body is viewed as the only channel of accurate interpretation of their own translation of the Bible. And so you and I aren't able to really rightly interpret the Bible. Their governing body is the only one who's rightly able to do that. And did I mention as well that they also missed the dates of Armageddon numerous times from 1914 through 1975? Then I think they just finally quit trying to say when that date would be. And so uh, there are a lot of issues. When they pull out their Bible, um, you can often use that translation as a as a tool to help lead them to the truth because it's filled with errors and there are things there that they can't 
really come to grips with. Uh, but just understand that when they're standing on their doorstep and they're raising issues and questions and doubts in your mind from their Bible, it's not the Bible. <laughs> it's their understanding of the Bible. So just, just keep that in mind. So what do they believe about Jesus specifically? Here's where I want to spend well, before I get to Jesus, let me mention their understanding of salvation. Their, their understanding of salvation is basically uh, adherence to Jehovah and works. It's a works-based salvation. Uh, it's not coming to God through Jesus. They don't believe that Jesus is God. Uh, it's an adherence to Jehovah and then a bunch of works. When they're knocking on your door, it's not nearly as much for your salvation as it is for their own, they think. They're doing that to try to work their way to God, to Jehovah and uh, and obviously, the biblical view of Scripture is that there are no works at all that we come to God through His Son, Jesus Christ, in repentance and faith. And so that's, that's um, the biblical view of salvation. All right, so let's look at their understanding of Jesus. Here's who they believe Jesus is. When you unpack your baggage titled Jesus, you unpack it, and what comes out is this, that Jesus is God, that Jesus is God's Son who came, who died on the cross for our sins, who rose again. We'll cover some of this in a few moments. Their understanding of Jesus is much differently, much different, however. The Jehovah's Witness would believe that Jesus is a created being, meaning that he was, there was a point where he came into existence. Not born, into, not born as, a, as, a, as a child and live his life on earth. No, they believe there was a time when Jesus was not, and then he was created by Jehovah. That's why their understanding of John 1, 1, that's why they put that in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was, and then they add a small letter G, God. They believe that Jesus is less than God and that he was created by Jehovah, and then ultimately everything else in creation was created by him. Does that make sense? Hopefully it doesn't because it's not true. That's their understanding of who Jesus is. When they begin to look at who Jesus is, they believe that Jesus had certain stages in his existence. They believe that he existed as Michael, the archangel. Nowhere in the Bible points to this. They believe that he came as a perfect man and that he became the Messiah at his baptism. And then when he died, that he rose again spiritually, and then he became Michael the archangel again. So that's kind of their belief of who Jesus is. Uh, that's, that's not in the Bible. That's, that's not, you're not going to find that in there. That's their under, when they unpack their luggage called Jesus, that's what they're thinking of. My, Mar, Michael the archangel, and then he came as a perfect man, became the Messiah at his baptism, and then he uh, died and he, and he uh, rose spiritually, not physically, that he rose, and then he became Michael the archangel again. That's their understanding of Jesus. They don't believe that he was crucified on a cross. Uh, they believe that he was impaled on a torture stake. You can read the gospel accounts there in their translation, and you'll actually see that terminology that's used, uh, that he was impaled on a torture stake. have no idea where they get that from or why they go there, but they don't believe that he was crucified specifically on a cross, and their terminology even reflects that and shows that. So, so again, when you look at their doctrine, they're going to whip out a Bible. It's not the Bible. They're going to use a lot of the same words, God, Jesus, salvation, eternal life, peace on earth, all those things. They're going to use the same words, but they do not mean the same thing as what you as a follower of Jesus Christ would understand them to mean. It is a counterfeit version of Christianity. So let's look at, at one specific area of their doctrine, the person of Jesus. And let's look at what the Bible teaches specifically. This is where I want to move through quite a few passages of Scripture. And uh, I hope you'll be able to stick, stick with me. Um, if not, just jot down the reference and then you can go back and look at it on your own. So we've looked at the authority of Scripture, right, with the Mormons. We've looked at who God is. And when we looked at the New Age movement today, 
let's look at who Jesus is from a biblical Christian view as it relates to the Jehovah's Witnesses. First of all, the Bible teaches that Jesus is eternal. The Bible doesn't teach that he was created by God. The Bible teaches that Jesus is eternal. He is without beginning and without end. Revelation chapter 1 verse 8 is a great verse among many, many verses to look at where he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. The context of that passage is very clearly talking about Jesus when you read it in context. And so he says, the one who is, who was, who is to come. It's a reference to, to, his, to the eternal quality of his existence, that Jesus is eternal. The Bible also teaches us that Jesus died as a sacrifice, that he died as a substitute for our sins, that he is a sacrifice, that he is our substitute. Second Corinthians chapter 5, look at what it says here, verse 21. It says, he made him who knew no sin, that's a reference to Jesus, he made him who knew no sin to be sin. In other words, he became sin for us. Jesus was our substitute. He took the sin that characterized who we were and who we are, he took it upon himself so that on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Here's the exchange that happened when it happens when a person gives their life to Christ, that he takes his perfect righteousness and he gives it, credits it to us. And in exchange, he takes our sin and he takes it upon himself. It is the greatest exchange that's ever happened. Greater than any exchange of stock or funds or position or anything like that. This is the greatest exchange that's ever taken place where God took, Jesus took my sin and in exchange for my sin, he gave me his righteousness when I chose to place my faith in him. And so the Bible teaches us specifically that Christ died as our sacrifice in our place as our substitute. The third thing the Bible teaches is that Jesus rose from the dead physically. Jehovah's Witnesses believe he only rose spiritually, that he didn't rise physically. The Bible teaches that he rose physically, bodily from the grave. Look at what it says here in one of Paul's writings in 1 Corinthians 15. He says that I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared, as a physical appearance, that he appeared to Cephas, which is a reference to Simon Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared bodily to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep, Paul would say here in this context in the first century. And so the the picture there is that Jesus, when he rose from the dead, he rose bodily. He rose physically. If you remember there in the Gospel of John, when he rises from the dead, he sees his disciples. And what does he do? He, he, he makes a fire and he's cooking, right? He's eating right there in front of them. I mean, he bodily had resurrected from the dead. That is so important for us to recognize that Jesus died for our sins. But when he rose again, he rose physically from the grave. He was resurrected from the grave. That's what Scripture teaches us specifically. And by the way, when Paul makes mention of the 500 who witnessed him, when you look at Scripture, if, if the Bible was not true, we would have umpteen examples out of history of people who said, you know what, I did live during that time, and none of this is true. I went to the grave, and I saw his body there. We have none of that in history. None of that. And so what we find here is that Jesus did rise 
after dying for our sins, and he rose physically. Number four, the fourth thing we'll see is that he's returning again physically as well. The Bible makes that very clear that he will return again. Jehovah's Witnesses have a different understanding of that. Uh, Scripture teaches us that Jesus will return bodily. Look at what it says here in the book of Acts, the very first chapter. This is as Jesus ascends back to heaven again, right after the resur- uh, 40 days after his resurrection. It says, they also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who's been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. So what were the followers of Christ looking at there in Acts 1? They see Jesus rising up to heaven, ascending back to the Father. Literally, physically, they see it with their own eyes. Right? The angel comes and says, you know, what are you doing? Why are you looking up into heaven? The same way that you're seeing him bodily go up, he's going to come back again as well. He's going to return again. And so the Bible makes it very clear that when he comes, that he will come physically, he will come literally, and he will come bodily, that he will return again, ultimately to usher in his reign on this earth. The Bible also teaches, unlike Jehovah's Witness doctrine, that Jesus is God. Whenever I have conversation with Jehovah's Witnesses, oftentimes I'll just sort of cut to the chase because one, it saves time and it saves energy. Um, you know, there are a lot of other little things that they'll want to talk about, about wouldn't you love to have paradise on earth? Well, yeah, I'd love paradise on earth. You know, don't you think this, you know, it's like, just cut to the chase. You know, what do you believe about Jesus? And, and sometimes I'll just be very pointed. Do you believe that Jesus is God? And if they have any integrity, they're going to say, no, we don't. And so there's where, for me, oftentimes that's where the conversation starts. They believe that Jesus, as I mentioned earlier, is less than God. Let me just show you some evidence internally right out of scripture. And uh, I think this is going to raise some issues specifically uh, for, for their beliefs. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. There is a proof out of prophecy that proves that Jesus is God. Isaiah was writing 700 years before Jesus would come. He says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. This is a reference to Jesus' birth, right? Christmas. If you look at Matthew's account, Matthew also mentions this, but he gives us the meaning of the word Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. So when you look at the name of Jesus, if Jesus is less than God, it would be a, be a bit, um, well, it would just basically be lying, wouldn't it, to name him Emmanuel, God with us, if he's less than God. But when you look at the prophet Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus would come, inspired by the Holy Spirit writing God's word, he would tell us, and Matthew would give evidence of it in the New Testament, that Jesus' name would also be called Emmanuel, God with us. You see, prophecy proves to us that Jesus is God. Not only does prophecy prove that Jesus is God, but also Jesus' own works prove that he is God. Uh, Look at what it says here in the book of Mark. This is an interesting passage of Scripture. It's a lengthy passage, but let me just read through it. It says, Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic. This is an instance in his ministry where he encounters a man who had been paralyzed. He says he encounters this paralytic, and he says, Son, your sins are forgiven. Some of the scribes were sitting there. They were reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak that way? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? See, the issue is, is Jesus God here? This is the whole scope of the conversation. Immediately, Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, pick up your pallet, and walk? 
But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. And he got up and immediately picked up the pallet, went out in the sight of everyone, so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. You see, Jesus' works prove that he is God. He comes onto the scene, he encounters this man paralyzed, he did this in other instances as well. And the question is, he says, your sins are forgiven. The whole question is, well, who do you think you are forgiven sins? Only God can forgive sins. And he says, okay then, that's a great point. So let me just prove to you who I am. Sir, get up, take your pallet, go home. The man gets up, takes his pallet, goes home. He's healed on the spot. Only God can do this. And he proves to everyone watching that he's exactly who he claimed to be, God himself. Prophecy proves that Jesus is God. Jesus' works prove that he is God. What about the other people's words about him in Scripture? Look, look at this instance right out of uh, Jesus' resurrection. He's appeared to some of the disciples. Remember Thomas, doubting Thomas, had missed it. He had not seen Jesus resurrected until this instance. You can read the context on your own later if you'd like. But in verse 20, 28, here's what Thomas says. Thomas answered, said to him, said to Jesus, my Lord and my God. The Greek word for God is the Greek word theos. Uh, uh, you wonder, well, what exactly does that mean? Just follow me here for a second. Jump over to Romans chapter 4, verse 3. It says, what does the scripture say? Abraham, all the way back in the Old Testament, believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham lived in the day before Jesus came, born of the Virgin Mary. It says he believed God. This is a New Testament passage written in New Testament Greek. What New Testament word is used for God? It's the word theos. So in other words, follow me on this. In the same way that Abraham viewed God, <laughs> Thomas would look at Jesus and say, you also are God. Same Greek word, theos. Others' words about Jesus. Prophecy. Jesus' own works would all point to the simple fact that he's God. But, but there's one other area of evidence, I think, from Scripture as well, when you look at the, the deity of Christ, and that specifically is Jesus' own testimony about himself. Jehovah's Witnesses will tell you, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, let's take a look at this next passage of Scripture in John 10, another, another um, slice out of Jesus' ministry. It says, at that time, the Feast of the Dedication took place in Jerusalem. It was winter. Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. The Jews then gathered around him, and they were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. But you do not believe because you're not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them. They'll never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one, Jesus says. So Jesus' own statement when he speaks of his relationship with God the Father is that he says, I and the Father are one. He is speaking of their nature. We are of the same nature. He was claiming to be God, and if you say, no, he wasn't claiming to be God, he was speaking of something else. Look at verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to, uh, to stone him. Why were they wanting to stone him? For blasphemy. What was considered blasphemy? That he claimed to be God, right? So when, the, when a person from a counterfeit Christian group says, Jesus never claimed to be God, take him to this passage of Scripture, John 10, 10, that his enemies knew what he was claiming because they wanted to crucify him and, or stone him right here for it. 
And so you look at the Bible, what does the Bible say about itself? It, it prophecy points to his deity. Jesus' works point to his ge- deity. Other people's words about him point to his deity. Uh, Jesus' own words about himself point to his deity. What happened whenever the children began to worship him, coming into the city of Jerusalem before his crucifixion? Did Jesus quiet them? Did he tell them to stop because he wasn't God? This is blasphemy, don't worship them? No, he didn't stop them. In fact, he said, if these don't worship me, even the rocks themselves will cry out. Jesus received worship. No good legitimate Jew who was a good man, who was a God-fearing man, would ever accept worship. When that happened to Paul in the book of Acts, he said, whoa, 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 don't you dare be worshiping me. There is only one God worthy of our worship. And yet Jesus openly received and welcomed worship. Why? Because he's God. That's why. When you look at Scripture, and if we had time, we've already looked at the authority of Scripture, but if we looked outside of Scripture, there are many other places we could look. Historians, men like Josephus and others that have written that would also testify to the deity of Christ. It's not just the Bible that does that. And so the Bible teaches us that Jesus is God, despite what most counterfeit Christian groups would teach. The last thing that I wanted to focus on is that Jesus, the Bible presents Jesus as the only way to a relationship with God the only way. John 14, 6, what does he say in his own words? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. People will say Christianity is so exclusive, and they're exactly right. That's not our fault. It's the way God made it. (laughs) It's not worth apologizing for. I mean, God sets the rules when you create the universe. You have the right to set the rules. There are no many ways to God. There are no, well, this person's way, and as long as you're sincere, then that way, that pathway, no, it doesn't work that way. Jesus himself said, I alone am the way to a relationship with God. No one, he says. And in the Greek, that means not nobody. (laughs) No one comes to the Father except through me. You come in repentance. You lay down your sin. You come in faith. You place your faith in me. And this is the only way that you'll have a relationship with God. It's exclusive. There are no other ways. There are no other versions. All others less than the truth are counterfeit. And only through Christ do we have a relationship with God. You know, when we begin to look at that, I don't think there's a Jehovah's Witness among us today. (laughs) I'd be shocked. Um, Viewing the way they look at those that aren't Jehovah's Witnesses as basically apostates. I don't think they'd be here. So there are no Jehovah's Witnesses among us, but... These truths about Jesus put a lot on the table for us to wrestle with. Because there, there is a passage of Scripture in 1 Peter chapter 3 that I think really kind of puts the deity of Christ in our laps as followers of Jesus. Look at what it says. It says, but sanctify. In other words, some translations say set apart. Sanctify or set apart Christ as a Lord in your hearts. Always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you with gentleness and reference. Set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts. Is Christ, you may have a relationship with God today, but can you say where you sit this morning that Jesus Christ is Lord of every area of your life? Singles, that he's, in Lord, he's the Lord of my dating life. Businessman, that he is in, he's the Lord of the way you run your business. Can you say he's the Lord of your decisions, that he's the Lord of your finances, that he's the Lord not just of your eternity, but of your here and now? Can you say that he's Lord, that you have set him apart as Lord of that aspect of your life? And can you as well say that there's been a time in your life when you genuinely, genuinely, the Bible speaks of, have chosen to turn from your sin and to invite Jesus Christ, your only hope, to come in to forgive you 
and to take over. If you've never done it, hey, there is no better time than today, right where you sit, to say, Jesus, for the first time today, I believe you for who you are, that you are God, that you died as my substitute, that I need you because of my sin. And today, Jesus, I ask you to come to forgive me, wipe my slate clean, and take over. You know what? When you pray that, he'll answer it. And he'll do just that. He'll come and he'll forgive and he'll wipe your slate clean and he'll take over your life from this day forward. There's a classic Christian author named C.S. Lewis who has a lengthy quote out of one of his books titled Mere Christianity. If you've never read it, I'll recommend it. But I want to close with this quote because I think it perfectly brings things to a head. Read along with me. He says, But I wonder whether people who ask God to interfere openly and directly in our world quite realize what it'll be like when he does. When that happens, it's the end of the world. When the author walks onto the stage, the play's over. (laughs) God is going to invade, all right, but what is the good of saying that you're on his side then? When you see the whole natural universe melting away like a dream and something else, something that never entered your head to conceive, when it comes crashing in, something so beautiful to some of us and so terrible to others that none of us will have any choice left. For this time it will be God without disguise, something so overwhelming that it will strike either irresistible love or irresistible horror into every creature. It will be too late then to choose your side. There is no use saying you choose to lie down when it has become impossible to stand up. That will not be the time for choosing. It will be the time when we discover which side we really have chosen, whether we realized it before or not. And so now, today, this moment, is our chance to choose the right side. God is holding back to give us that chance. It will not last forever. We must take it or leave it. Let's pray. God, all over this room today, there are Christians who are living life daily without Christ set apart as Lord of every aspect of life. And they've prayed and given their lives to Christ. But there is an area of life where they're holding back and not allowing you to be the God that you want to be in that area. Lord, there are some here today that have never given their lives to Christ. They've never prayed and asked Jesus to take his payment on the cross that was enough and to apply it to their sin and to their lives, to make them free, to to forgive them, that he might take over as Savior and Lord. God, whatever decisions we need to make, Lord, I pray that we'd make them today. And that as we leave this place, that we would leave here knowing that we are people under authority, under your authority. That Christ is one who we desire to reign over every aspect of our lives. And God, the way that happens is we invite him to do that. And so, Lord, big decisions really could be made all over this place today. For people who choose to live under your authority, God, marriages could be changed, families could be changed, a whole course of life could be changed if we allow you to be the God that you want to be in us. And so whatever decisions we need to make today, God, give us wisdom, give us courage, that we might follow you where you lead. And for those who don't know you, Lord, right where they sit this morning, I pray that they would give their lives to Christ for the very first time, trusting him to be Savior and Lord of them from this day forward. And so bless this time of decision, we ask, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand.